Um, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, um, if you would, to uh, the book of Hebrews now. We were in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Now, sometimes people will look at the bulletin before the worship service, and they'll say, oh, I wonder what uh, text the pastor's going to preach on tonight, what the title is. And the title from Hebrews 13 is Finding Love in All the Right Places. And you're probably wondering, hmm, maybe it's going to be a sermon on romance or something, or marriage or dating or something. Well, I'm sorry. If you were hoping for that, you're not going to get it. But it is uh, still about uh, romance or love in the context of... Uh, the church. And we're going to be taking a look at a number of qualities uh, in the church that are bound by one thing, as we're going to see, and that is love. And I'll explain what that means a little bit later on. Now, one other thing before we uh, begin our scripture reading uh, tonight, and that is we are in a book of the Bible that is, if you grew up with the Bible, you know somewhat about the Bible, you know it's kind of what we call a doctrinally deft or one of the heavier books of the Bible because it deals with the whole relationship between the two-thirds, the first two-thirds of the Bible and the last third of the Bible. First two-thirds of the Bible uh, constitute what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and then we also have the New Testament. And the whole book of Hebrews is about the sufficiency of Jesus and the superiority of Jesus and the New Covenant system over the Old Covenant. And with the coming of Jesus, the Old Covenant has become obsolete. The new covenant, we find greater power, greater life, and hopefully what we see here tonight, greater love. So Hebrews chapter 13. Let's begin reading at verse 1. And notice, like a lot of epistolary literature, the doctrine is first of all exposited in the first part of Hebrews, and then the last part deals with more practical matters of Christian living. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You know, all those maybe last four or five verses that we read, you're not really going to understand in any way what, what they're all getting at. They're the one of the more difficult verses of chapter 13 
but they really have to deal with, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this in the sermon itself, the difference between practices and laws of the Old Covenant and what we have in the New Covenant. Okay, verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no, uh, no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And finally, verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And then we have a final benediction here with some greetings, uh, a usual way of ending what we call epistolary literature, that is, literature of the Bible that comes in the form of a letter. Now, these are the verses that we're going to be considering um, tonight, and before we consider them together, I want, to, uh, I want to ask you a really simple question I want you to think about, and that is this. What kind of church would you like this to be? What kind of church would you like this to be? Or if you're new here and you've been... Uh, maybe it's your first time, or maybe uh, it's a second or third time, or what have you. Uh, let me ask you this question as someone new here. What kind of church would you like this to be? And more specifically, what kind of church are you looking for? Um, I meet with all kinds of newcomers, as I've told you many times before in this church. You're probably aware of that. A lot of times we talk about our, our uh, spiritual journeys together and our stories together, and um, I take time to kind of explain what this church is all about. And a number of times, uh, at, at a certain point in the conversation, I'll ask, uh, you know, what kind of church are you looking for, actually? And I, I find that two things usually arise. They're looking for, not exclusively, but primarily they're looking for preaching. They, they say, well, Bible-based preaching. And then secondly, what I'm looking for is community. I want, I want a place where I can fit in and maybe uh, serve um, some time. But other than that, I have found that many, many people, and maybe you're like that a little bit here this, uh, tonight, where you go, I really don't have a working criteria in terms of specifics of what I would like in a church, or maybe what kind of church I should think about joining. And if that's the case, this is a good passage um, for you. It's, well, it's a good passage for all of us tonight. The best question to ask ourselves tonight is not what kind of church would I like, but what kind of church should this be according to the teaching of the Bible? And, you know, you don't have to go far to answer that question because we have that here in, in our passage tonight. And what's nice about this passage is it really gets into specifics. It really gives us qualities, if you will, of a healthy church. Now, a lot of times when, when, when people want to know about a healthy church and a balanced church, what I'll do is I'll draw their attention to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, where it says that the early church Christians, when they gathered together, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
So they devoted themselves to doctrine. They devoted themselves to fellowship, spiritual fellowship. They devoted themselves to what we call the breaking of bread, which refers to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And they devoted themselves to things like love and generosity and also prayer. Now, what this passage does for us tonight is it kind of builds on that and adds more specifics. So again, what we have here tonight is a number of qualities that constitute a vibrant and healthy church. If these qualities are embodied in a church, they're in practice in a church. Okay? Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to consider this passage as a unit in other words, I want, to, I want to deal with all these qualities together, and there's a number of them. So in a sense, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of get in a helicopter. We're going to take a helicopter ride over this passage. And typically, I don't like to handle a passage that way. I kind of like to handle a passage the way that we did this morning when we looked at Matthew chapter 9. We take a few verses and kind of bleed them out and say, well, okay, what exactly are these verses saying? But there is a time and a place to deal with a passage as a whole and not deal with every verse as a particular sermon. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to focus on this as a unit. And as we do, we're going to see tonight something that immediately does not jump out at you when you look at a passage like this. And that is one thing that binds all these qualities together. Qualities that distinguish us from the world, but also qualities that attract uh, make the, uh, that, that attract the world to us. And the one thing that binds these qualities together and the one thing that makes us attractive to the world and also distinguished from the world, and that is very simply this, it's love. More specifically, it's well-ordered love. Not a love that you're going to find out there, which in many ways, is a disordered and kind of messed up, misdirected love oftentimes. But what we find here is a well-directed love, a well-ordered love. So I want to I consider this, this passage or run through these qualities uh, together with you. Before we do that, I want to do one more thing, and I think it's an important thing, and that is this. I want to draw your attention to one individual in the history of the church that has had a huge influence on the Christian church. He lived about 1,400 years ago. His name was Aurelius Augustine. And Augustine had a number of incredible insights. He's one, known as one of the great church fathers. And he had a number of wonderful insights. And one of the insights that he had revolved around the nature of love. And what Augustine did is he drew a distinction when it came to the matter of love. And it was St. Augustine who was well known for this phrase that he who distinguishes well thinks well. And that's really true, especially when it comes to matters of doctrine, matters of theology, but also in this case, also the matter of love. And he drew a distinction between two types of love, um, well-ordered love and disordered love. And he said this, and I'll try to keep it very simple. He said, well-ordered love is God-directed Misdirected love is self-centered. Well-ordered love ushers in freedom and life, and disordered, misdirected love ushers in, and we see this 
in the world around us, and maybe some of us may even be experiencing tonight, this tonight, misdirected or disordered love brings certain forms of enslavement, and dissolution, and breakdown, and ultimately, if well-ordered love is not found, it ushers in death. Two types of love. It was Augustine who not only talked about those two loves, but he is one that we need to understand, experience them personally, both well-ordered love as well as disordered love. One person wrote this about St. Augustine. He said, Augustine grew up in a dysfunctional family, suffered through childhood trauma, was prone to theft and dishonesty, was virtually addicted to sex and food, enjoyed the life of the theater and cabaret, studied offbeat philosophies and religions, lived with a mistress, fathered a child through her, and for a time lived as a single parent. His life was unquestionably disordered, and like many of our contemporaries, he found himself on a relentless course in search of healing and happiness. Any of us identify with what was just read about Augustine? Maybe some of us can in another life, in a former life, if you will, before we came to Christ. Maybe you know something of that here tonight. This was Augustine. He was a man, for all intents and purposes, who was enslaved to the world. The kind of world, actually, now as we broach our passage, that uh, many of the Christians lived in during the time of this writing. And uh, just a little bit of a side, many of you know this, but some of you may not, we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. It's in the Bible, but we don't know who the author is. But he is writing to Christians in a dark world like Augustine. And it was, a, it was a world of dysfunctional and disordered, misdirected love. And it was really, like today, it was a world that was crying out for good love, you know, God-directed love, healthy love. Now, if you look at our passage, you'll see a number of exhortations to embrace, not dysfunctional, not disordered, but well-ordered love. Love for fellow Christians, love for visitors, love for spouses, and so on. Now... I want to draw your attention to the passage now. Let's just follow through it, and then I'm going to make some further comments about this. Notice how it begins. It begins with a number of exhortations. When we say exhortations, we're saying calls to do something, calls to embody something, and encouragements to do so. Here's the first one. Let brotherly love continue. The assumption here is that love is part of what Christians are experiencing in the churches to whom he writes. You can be a church that can have kind of detailed confessional standards like we have. You can have a church with conservative theology and conservative lifestyles, but if you don't have love, then you really don't have much, do you? Then you end up becoming, in the eyes of the world, a rather hypocritical body. Oh, you know a lot, but maybe you don't feel a lot. You don't live a lot. You know, the, the Bible says that if God has so loved us, so also ought we to love one another. As some ancient writers have said regarding the church, may it be said among the world when they observe us, behold how they love one another. The word brotherly, love here, are the two words in the original language. The word for love is philos, and the word for 
brother, as in brotherly love, is Adelphos. Philos Adelphos, from which the city of Philadelphia gets its name, right? You learn that in school, in grade school. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, here it talks about the importance of brotherly love. There are three words that are commonly known in the Greek language for love. Philos, agape, and eros. Eros is kind of the, and the reason why I bring this out is eros love, from which we get the English word erotic, is the kind of so-called love that we find in the world. It's a very sexualized love, a very unrestrained type of love. That's found in classical Greek literature. It's not found in the Bible. Philos love, as well as agape love, are found, and agape love oftentimes is connected with the kind of love that should be expressed not only between Christians, but between husband and wife. The word philos does not go quite as deep as agape love, but it's more a good word for that would be affection. Let brotherly affection continue. Let sisterly affection continue. Enough on that. It also says this. Notice verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, in the context like this, we are to show each other and show the world that we do have affection for one another. But also, as we show affection to one another, we must not show the kind of affection that goes so deep that, that we forget about those whom the Lord sends here, right? And so sometimes you have a church where the, 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 the love between the people is, is pretty tight and it's pretty good, but they're neglecting something. They're neglecting the person who comes to them that's not part of the regular body. If you take a look closely at verse 2, it doesn't say, do not show hostility to strangers, but do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, how many times is it when, when a visitor comes to the church that's expressing love between the members of the body, how oftentimes isn't it where they don't say, oh, I went to that particular church, and they, <laughs> they're pretty nasty to me. Rarely does that happen. Most of all, most of what happens is that they, they're simply neglected. Um, one one of, of the members of this church said, hey, I was on vacation. I went to a particular church in Montana. said the preaching was really good, but afterwards nobody ever said anything to me. We just walked out. You know? So without belaboring that point, we'll look at that later in our series on evangelism in our morning services. So I'm not going to belabor the point now. So let us show love to those who are seen, to each other, also the stranger who comes. But let us also show love to those who are not seen. Who are those? The people in prison. Take a look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. When was the last time you thought of somebody in jail or in prison? Maybe say, I don't even know anybody in prison. Still, oftentimes do we think of how someone is in need of a kind word or the gospel of Christ in the prison system. You know, Chuck Colson, very well-known Christian writer, gave his life to that after he was converted. Um, when you take a look at verse 3, and it talks about prison. If you have a Bible or a device, very quickly, and this is the only place elsewhere that I want you to turn, turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 10, because um, I want to suggest to you that it's highly likely that when the writer of Hebrews talks about those in prison, he's talking about fellow Christians. Chapter 10, verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves, yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So do not forget to show love to each other, to the visitor, and also to the forgotten, to those in prison, even your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As we move on, how about love within the context of marriage? Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now notice the strong language here. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You might, might ask yourself, why is, why is the language here so severe? And that is because, and we, maybe some of you experience this, but also you, you see this in our society around us, that when you, when you have cheating going on between spouses, whether it occurs in terms of, and the word here is um, adulterous affair, which means a sex with somebody who's other than your spouse, but it also mentions here just the sexually immoral, that is, people are engaged in just general immoral activity, whether it be pornography, or whether it be uh, other forms of sexual aberrations that we find in society, that, that when you have a society or you have people in the church who fall into that, this has, it has more devastating effects than someone maybe getting caught stealing a shirt from Walmart, right? Or failing to show love to a stranger or something like this. Marital infidelity has so many terrible and long-reaching and long-lasting uh, consequences that, that bring, uh, I think, a greater judgment of God upon that particular sin than, than other sins. It can be forgiven, of course, but, but it, is, it is not a good place to be. Um, the marriage bed is to be held uh, in honor. And that's, that's well, we go on and on about this, but that's hard in our society, isn't it? Right? There is so much sexual stuff around us. So let the marriage, marriage bed be held in honor. Now, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Here we have a love now, not only for spouse, but love for simplicity. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In a world that is consumeristic, you know, in a, in a world is this after material gain, right? He who has the most toys wins. Church is very different. There has to be a love for simplicity that, that recognizes that we don't have to pursue all the material goods in the world. Why? Because we're going to trust the Lord's going to give us our daily bread. Just like he gave manna to our ancestors in the wilderness. Moving on. How about a love for leaders? Verse 7. I want to connect verse 7 also with verse 17. In verse 7, we talk about the need to remember the leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, probably referring to those who were the original leaders in the churches of which these people belong to. But also, love requires that we obey our leaders and submit to them. For they are those who keep watch um, over your souls. There's more to that. But I just want to touch on this. God has given the leaders to the church, imperfect leaders, as you know, but leaders nonetheless, and who are ordained, who are set apart into office for the benefit of the body. And we're, to, we're, we're called to love them, you know, not just 
you know, out of duty, obey them and submit to them, but to love them. And, and why is love most important? Remember, love is the binding thing behind all these qualities. Why is love so important? Because when you love someone, then obedience and submission, even if it's imperfect leadership, comes more natural. Otherwise, what happens is obedience and submission is simply a matter of duty and not devotion or delight. I mean, we experience that as, as parents, right? When you have kids and you're raising kids, you know, do parents want their kids to obey them? Sure. Do kids, the parents want kids to respect them? Sure. But it's, it's a painful thing if you have kids who are doing that out of fear or just because it's their duty, I'm supposed to do that, but it's altogether different, right? You know as a parent when your kids get a sense of love for them that they obey you and you submit to you because, man, they just love you, right? That's, that's the perfect situation. That's the same thing with the church. Now, moving on. Also, if you look at verses 9 through 13, there is to be ultimately here a love for truth, a truth grounded in the superiority and the sufficiency of Jesus over the old covenant system. You notice it mentions things like foods, referring to food laws of the Old Testament. It talks about the blood of animals, part of sacrifices. It talks about holy places and a high priest and a sacrifice for sins and so on. It's all language of the Old Covenant. And the reason why the author here speaks about a love for truth is because the people needed the truth because many of the Christians in the churches at this time were carryovers from Judaism. I should make more accurately converts from Judaism. So they grew up with all this old covenant imagery relating to worship and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the laws and in comes Jesus and the new covenant. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, entrust yourself to Jesus. Let him be sufficient. He is the once and for all sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Everything about the Old Testament, the altar, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the worship, the laws, oh, they all point to him. And they all find their fulfillment and their finality in him. If that's true, then why go back? You should never go back. Move forward, placing your trust in the sufficiency and the superiority of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, we start drawing more to a close of this passage. I want to draw you to a few other places. Look at verse 14. The writer says, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We are to have a love for eternity. You know, the way that we live our lives in the here and now are to always be governed by what we're going to experience that we'll experience in the life to come. That's why Jesus says, make the kingdom of God your priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. People in this world, man, they live for the here and now because that's all they have. If they think about eternity, maybe it's a little bit of a blip in their mind. Christians are to have a love for eternity, and it's that eternity and an aspiring to eternity that is to cover, color their lives in the here and now. Verse 15, this would be a love for doxology, that is a love for praise and worship. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. People in the world, those outside of Christ, they might acknowledge that God may be real, he may not be, but they don't live a life of praise, they don't live a life of worship or gratitude. 
for what God and Christ has done for them, but that's the way it's supposed to be with the Christian community. Just a few other verses. Verse 16, how about a love? And here's something that really distinguishes us from the world. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The church is to be generous with his time, with his finances. You know, I've said this before, I'll say it again, it's a word of encouragement, you know, the giving, at least financially here, but also your giving to the ministries of this church and for the good of this body is such a, it's a beautiful thing to see. May it continue, you know, because that says, you know what, we have a love for generosity. What it, what it ultimately says is, you know what, the Lord has dealt so generously with us. Therefore, we want to deal generously with each other and with those whom the Lord brings to us. And we already dealt with verse 17. We touched on that. I just want to end with verse 18. We are to have a love for communication, for, for prayer, which is a means of communication with God. Pray for us. And we could say also we need to pray for each other. He writes, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring, says those of the ministry, to act honorably in all things. Prayer is important because, well, as, as one of our confessional documents of our church puts it, it's a chief form of thanksgiving, but prayer is also a way of expressing our absolute dependence upon God for all the good of this body and also the kind of good that we can show to others. Now, here's the thing. These, these qualities that we have here in this passage are not an exhaustive list by any means. We might call them essential qualities every church should have. And in, in, in laying out some of these, these qualities to you tonight, if, if you've been in the faith for some time, they're probably pretty unremarkable and unsurprising qualities. I doubt that <coughs> as you were <coughs> listening tonight, you were thinking, well, boy, that, that's, a, that's something I never really thought about. Sometimes, you know, for people who've been in the faith for a while, it preaches more reminders than always, you know, teaching something new, although you, we always want to be learning something together. But these qualities become truly remarkable and truly surprising when we consider them in light of the culture in which we are living, and particularly when we consider the culture in which the people to whom the author of Hebrew writes lived at the time. And the individuals who lived during this time were those who lived in the Roman Empire. Now, there's a, a book that I cited um, upon occasion in the, in the history of this church from the pulpit and also in the teaching ministry of the church is a book that was put out about 20 years ago by a man named Peter Jones called uh, Capture, uh, Capturing the Pagan Mind. And in that book, it's a very interesting book in that he lays out a number of the characteristics of the Roman Empire in which the Christians at this time are living. And what he also lays out in the book are some of the eerie parallels that exist between the Roman Empire, as it was during that time about 2,000 years ago, and where we're at as a nation today. And in that book, Peter Jones characterizes the Roman Empire in this way. He characterizes it by the pursuit of affluence, of material good, a devotion to entertainment, particularly increasing forms of violence 
in entertainment. Uh, dependence, increasing dependence upon the state. So over time, Roman society became more like a welfare state. He talked about rampant divorce, breakdown of the family, androgyny. What's androgyny? That's where the distinctions, the created distinctions between male and female over time become diluted so that males become more like female and take on female characteristics and females take on more male characteristics. He talks about the preponderance of recreational sex, alternate sexuality, abortion, and a plunging population. Sound familiar? Right? This is our world. I will say this, and I, I would dare say, and this is going to be a bit of a comment, but I think most of us would probably affirm this, that, that as our society today continues its direction, and we sense, especially since the 60s sexual revolution, you know, um, American society, uh, not to always just be a harbinger of bad news, but this is reality. Since the 60s revolution, our culture has been kind of going like this, but doesn't it appear that like in the last 10 to 20 years, the descent has happened at a much rapid uh, pace. So it's kind of like this, and only like, like this. And I want to suggest to you that as our society is continuing to go like this, the relevance of a passage like we're considering tonight is going to only become greater. It's only going to be accentuated in the life and the ministry of this church. The church of Jesus Christ over time, as the descent continues, we'll see the need to return to the essentials or the basics of the Christian faith, not only as a means of life support, but as a countercultural witness uh, to the world. So, in short, what's probably going to happen in the next, oh, probably 10, 20, 30 years is this that the Church of Jesus Christ, and probably this church as well, will see itself as a community of well ordered love in an age of disordered love, a community of compassion in an age of neglect and uh, abuse. And that continues also uh, to happen here. You know, sometimes we receive people who, who you know, um, a lot of them has had healthy childhoods, but a number of people, and this is increasingly happening in society where they're growing up in situations that are not, not healthy and they're looking for help. It's only natural. A community of sexual restraint in an age of sexual excess, a community of simplicity in an age of material indulgence. The church will see itself more and more as a community of submission to authority in an age of what? What do we see today? We see anarchy, we see fires, we see riots, we see breakdowns uh, of, of, of communities. They're gonna see themselves as a community of truth in an age of lies, a community of generosity in an age of miserly self-interest a community of doxology in an age of idolatry, and a community of hope in an age of despair. In short, what's going to happen is that more and more churches today are going to, and probably with us as well, we're going to view ourselves more and more as churches as um, arcs of Noah in the world in which we're living, right? You think of the ark of Noah that was a place of refuge and a place of life in a world that is simply drowning. And we shouldn't be surprised at that, right? If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, what has gone around comes around once again. There's nothing new under the sun. And 
That's something that we need to remember. And, and view that not as you know, something of wringing of hands necessarily, but as an opportunity that we have in this world. So in the end, may God make us this, op- uh, this opportunity clear to us. There's an opportunity for uh, people in the world to, to come here. And the beautiful thing is, is whether we have been part of the church for a long time or, or whether we're new or people will continue to come here, it's going to, hopefully over time, in light of our passage, this is going to be a place where various forms of dysfunctional and disordered love might become reordered loves in order that ultimately we may be a people and a community of well-ordered and properly directed love for the sake of our Lord, for his glory, and for the blessing of this church but also uh, the blessing of our society. That's the way it was in the early church. May God bring it out, uh, bring it about again as, these, uh, as we enter in some rather dark days, okay? So let's pray together and let's uh, be encouraged together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of our passage. Lord, we, we are an imperfect church like every church. Um, but Lord, still by your grace, we do mirror um, a number of these qualities. We thank you for the love that we do have. We thank you for the opportunities that we've had to show uh, compassion toward others. And we pray that that will only increase. We thank you, love, uh, or thank you, Lord, for the love that we may experience also in our marriages. Uh, Lord, uh, there's no marriage that is perfect. And, and Lord, if, if we are struggling in our marriage, it's not something that we trumpet to other people around us. But Lord, we just pray that in light of this passage that our marriage beds remain uh, pure. We pray that our love would be pure for each other as spouses. We pray, Lord, for those of us who, who are in dating relationships and getting to know someone outside of marriage, we pray for purity in those relationships as well. Father, we thank you for the kind of generosity that we have been able to express here and be recipients of. Father, um, we pray, thanking you for these blessings. Continue to form this body in the image of Jesus. Make us effective, Lord, and help us to be a people of grace, not only to each other, but also to this world, in light of this passage of God. So, yes, this is what we bring before you tonight. Give us your blessing, Lord, and answer our prayer. For We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.